This week we're in Saratoga Springs for the World Fantasy Convention with very special guests and convention guests of honor, Glenn Cook and Stephen Erickson. Glenn is the best-selling and widely celebrated author of The Black Company, Dread Empire, and Garrett P.I. novels, amongst many others. And Steve's best known for his enormously popular Malazan Empire series of novels, as well as a new series of science fiction novels. And welcome both of you to the podcast. We were just uh, we were just talking on the way up about uh, about where epic fantasy writers come from. And you two, you, you have very different backgrounds. I mean, you were working for what, General Motors. General Motors, yes. And, and and you actually went through the literary creative writing workshop at the University of Iowa. Yeah, I did, but I, I was an archaeologist before that, so I, uh-huh. I switched fields partway through. And we know because we were talking. We were talking to Glenn just uh, on the way up here, who was at one of the first Clarion workshops, I guess. Now, had you had you written any fiction before you went to Clarion? Not published. I had been writing fiction since I was in the seventh grade, but uh, uh-huh. it was just an impulse thing. I saw a little ad in the back of If magazine, and I thought this will probably only be for big name people, but I'll spin them off a letter, and I did. And they said, "Come on down," you know. And I went and earned a reputation for being too much of a writer <laughs> in that I produced a new story every day rather than one a week. Wow. <laughs> wow. And tell us just briefly who your teachers were because that just blew us away in the elevator a few minutes ago. Okay, the, the man who managed the whole thing was Robin Scott Wilson who mm-hmm. published, uh, as far as I know, one novel and maybe 30 or 40 short pieces of fiction. He was an ex-CIA Berlin resident agent and very interesting gentleman. Uh, the resident teachers were Frederick Pohl, uh, Joanna Russ, Gerrit Slyber, Harlan Ellison, um, Damon Knight, Kate Wilhelm. Those are, the, those are the ones I can remember offhand. And you were in the same class with Octavia Butler. Yes, I was. So basically, the Hall of Fame. Of, uh, well, yeah, I mean, yeah. Yeah. that clarion class by itself is yeah. worth a, a, a book. Yeah. Well, as I say, there were twenty-two people, I think, in the class, and of the twenty-two, I would say a minimum of eighteen published at least one piece of fiction. Most of them published a number of novels. Some of them have been published under other names. They, mm-hmm. One gentleman I remember has written a lot of men's action adventure and stuff. And I know of three fellow students from my graduating year at Iowa who mm. are still published, or publishing now. So do you both think that workshops are actually valuable, or is it just that they happen to gather together people who <laughs> are likely to, to be successful? I would say it's six of one and half a dozen mm. of the other, really. Uh, I had no idea about rules and whatnot, of, of such basic things as manuscript formatting and stuff before I went. I had plenty of imagination. I wrote stories that all the teachers thought were great, mm-hmm. but I didn't know that double spacing meant two spaces between the lines rather than two spaces between the words. <laughs> and a lot of stuff like that. Yeah. Plus, I, I networked. Uh, they had people, not only the teachers who were there, who would like you and help you out if you were reasonably civilized. Um, they brought people in from New York. Uh, Gardner Dozois, I met when he was the first reader for um, Galaxy, I think it was, magazine. Mm-hmm. I met David Hartwell when he, I think he was still in college, I'm not sure. He he was first reader for New American Library, mm-hmm. and he was instrumental in the connection for my first novel sale. So. But I think that's very different from the MFA writing programs right. that you see at universities, which, as far as I can tell, are primarily there to produce teachers of writing as opposed to writers. I, that was certainly my experience in Iowa. Well, I mean, and Iowa is probably the top of the yeah. heap when it comes to that kind of programs. But yeah, MFA programs, I have a whole spiel about that, and people who listen to the podcast have probably heard it before. But it's it's, it's, it's a closed shop um, kind of industry. You give people MFAs so they can go out and teach to other people to get yeah. MFAs, and maybe they'll have one book published and 5,000 copies printed, and maybe they got a review in the Times for it. And that's their career. Uh, but that's the difference. Is that I know at Iowa you were discouraged from doing anything that looked fantastic. I didn't even give them the opportunity to discourage me. Mm-hmm. Um, I was writing 
basically contemporary fiction. Mm-hmm. But uh, at the same time, um, I think I started uh, one of my novels, which uh, is, is contemporary fiction, called mm-hmm. uh, This River Awakens. I was starting it um, at that university, and I remember in the first class, the first workshop, uh, I handed something in, the first chapter of this book, um, and my instructor was Frank Conroy, who was running the mm-hmm. program at the time. And after the workshop, first of all, he trashed it, utterly trashed it. Mm. And then he called me into his office, and he said he'd gone through my files of my application to see why I got in in the first place. Wow. So um, <laughs> that was not, not an auspicious start. Wow. Not an auspicious start at all. And, and my sense was, at least with, with Conroy, was uh, a kind of um, a suspicion regarding subtext. And, and I write with a lot of subtext. Mm-hmm. I, I play around with language, and, and um, he just sort of it. It, I, I, it was as if he couldn't couldn't quite grasp it and didn't know what was going on, and so mm. he dismissed it. And so I, I had a battle all the way through those two years at, at Iowa, even for writing contemporary fiction. So. Because the well, that's that's interesting, but I guess that's the difference between something like that and, and a clarion, because. They can't be pushing you in a certain direction, and they may, they may the Clarion may look more literary today than it might have, but if you've got Joanna Russ and Fritz Leiber as teachers, they can't you can't be teaching one you can't be writing one thing. Although the two of them apparently liked each other quite well, a bit. Yes, they did a great deal, and they each used their other, the other's characters. In yeah, their sword and sorcery stories. So. I'm curious. <clears throat> your the first novel of yours that I I came across was when the first Black Company books came out, right? What drew you to the, to the material that was in that? What, what, you know, what, was, what were the kind of things that drew you to the first things you wrote? Well, the first novel that I wrote was a porno novel. <laughs> <laughs> well, we understand that. Though. Everybody was doing it. I mean, people that you would never suspect nowadays. We would. I, the first convention I went to was the Worldcon, St. Louis, 1969. And all of the people that I was in awe of, I was at a party. And, uh, <laughs> Everybody who was famous at that time sitting around there talking about what they were writing in the porno field because you could knock one off in ten days and, and get enough money to pay the rent. You know, Although we would hardly count that as porno by today's standards. Well, most of it, no, uh, no, it was pretty tame. A lot of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, the first novel I wrote was, or that I had published, other than that, was entitled Heirs of Babylon. It was a post-apocalyptic story that featured the ship that I was on when I was in the Navy as a far future sail of the end of the world for the great battle. Of, and it was, uh, well, there's not much else to be said for it. It's not, mm-hmm. it's not a but, bad book, but it's it's a first book. Well, is it still in print? Oh, no, it's... Probably the only book of mine that's never been reprinted. Really? Other than the porno. But, uh, well, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, uh, but it was the first book that had overseas editions, too. So. And how do you get from that to the Dread Empire? And uh, Well, Dread Empire was actually the first thing I started writing. Oh, really? I, I started, when I first started uh, writing stuff down, I had this vast, vast... Thing in mind that was going to take up 14 volumes to tell the whole story. Wow. Three of those volumes would be short fiction, and I was writing a short fiction before mm-hmm. I did anything else. And enough of that got published over the years that they were able to make a Nightshade was able to make a collection, story collection. But um, that that was just was going to be the great work of my life was to tell this story about these three mm-hmm. guys who are brought together by fate and live their lives out both as friends and enemies and and tell the whole story of the entire history of that world it uh, it never completely panned out because I was writing other things as well as doing this mm-hmm. and when I wrote The Black Company when that first came out that was um, did much better than any of the Dread Empire books that, that had come out so that there was considerable pressure to to do to, to do more of this. There's still pressure today. Uh, well, why don't you write something like Black Company? Uh, <laughs> well, <yeah. laughs> From my de- dearly beloved publishers. <clears throat> do you find yourself a little bit um, 
well, preferring that perhaps the success had been elsewhere, so you'd be drawn, to get, you know, drawn to be able to write more of Dread Emperor and stuff you prefer to, rather than the Black Company stuff. Oh, I really like the Black Company stuff. Yeah. I have a great deal of fun with that. Yeah, tell. There's a joyful sense to that. Oh, yeah, the, the uh, I'm working on one right now that uh, will come between the first two books. That, but uh, but you basically had that huge architecture in mind from the beginning. Well, not with the Black Company. Well, not with the Black Company, but with the Dread Empire. Yeah, I I knew pretty much the entire story before I ever started writing it down. I was going to start with these guys when they were kids and run them through a bunch of like the early Conan stories, you know, stuff like that, and they gradually come together and be kings and whatnot, and and the story gets you know bigger and bigger. It starts Mm -hmm. just with three guys, and it grows and grows until telling the entire story of the world. Well, well, Steve, you do really large architectural forums, too. Mm-hmm. Did you have all this in mind at the beginning? Mm-hmm. With Mas- so the whole Maslin thing was... Yeah. Right. Yeah. But, I mean, my, my um, like two primary inspirations that, that sort of really uh, fired me up to, to, write, to write the series, um, and they're, they're kind of diametrically opposed stylistically. Uh, mm-hmm. One is Stephen R. Dawes and, and mm-hmm. his Lord Fowlsbane and... and um, Chronicles of Thomas Covenant, which is a, a very lyrical, Latinate, uh, mm-hmm. quite intense style of writing. Um, uh, long sentences, that kind of thing. And the other one was Glenn Cook's mm-hmm. Company, which was terse. Mm-hmm. And, and um, those two things, sort of for me, I, I love them both. It was a great sense of humor in, in the Black Company, which. Um, I was introduced to it through um, my roommate at the time and co-creator of the Malazan world, uh, Ian Esselman. Mm-hmm. Um, he just handed me these books, and I was at UVic at the time, and I was doing reading on uh, Vietnam War literature. So I was reading Tim O'Brien, I was mm-hmm. reading Gusta Passford, and absolutely floored by, by the short-timers. Um, and suddenly this Black Company book, you know, he Cam hands it to me, and I start reading it, and I'm thinking... I'm looking at Tim O'Brien and, mm-hmm. and, and Gus the Pastor. I'm going, wait a minute, this, this is the same kind of stuff, right? <laughs> right. But it's in a fantasy setting. And that was just an extraordinary leap, you know, mm-hmm. in terms of... For me, um, Donaldson helped epic fantasy grow up. It, it stepped out of YA, in a sense. And the, mm-hmm. almost the Tolkien, as teenagers, you know, as 13 or 14-year-olds, we read that stuff. And, and um, it can... Tolkien it was quite capable of bridging... Um, the age groups into adulthood. But for me, it was as if Donaldson just sort of took the genre and shook it by, by the throat. And, um, but then this comes along in this, this wonderful uh, Vietnam War-inspired, um, I guess, in some ways. Certainly the, 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 the language and the, um, and the dry humor and the atmosphere and um, the notion of magic being not much different from you know, napalm, and everybody just ducks their heads when it happens. It was just, it was, it was, it left me floored. And and so these were the two things I, I, I took as my ambition to somehow merge the the, the, the Donaldson uh, style and, and the Cook style. And um, I don't know whether I succeeded or not, but that's sort of where I, I, I began things. And so a huge inspiration. Well, I was saying to you yesterday, Steve, that when I look at the Black Company, I very much see it as being the fantasy equivalent in its position as the Forever War is in science fiction, even though it doesn't get that kind of credit necessarily widely. And I'm curious how much of your own military experience what was what drove you to to create that, to to explore that in fiction? Well, I'll say that um, almost all the members of the company that you see on stage during the first book are people I knew when I was in the service, except mm-hmm. for One Eye and Goblin. Uh, One Eye and Goblin really, if I'm completely honest about it, uh, are slightly derivative of characters named Monk and Ham from the Doc Savage folk <laughs> novels of the 1930s who were constantly squabbling and whatnot. <clears throat> um, I did not really set out to sell write Vietnam War fiction. I mean, I just, yeah. I just wanted to write about guys that 
that I knew and what I thought they'd be like under those kind of situations and whatnot. And that's but that's 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 a different way of writing about military uh, figures than you'd get, for example, in Heinlein. Uh, because the thing that strikes me about your characters is, and like Joel Haldeman's characters or like Gus Hosford's, is that the things they're concerned about aren't the things that people writing war novels sometimes want their characters to be concerned about. They're concerned with surviving, with you know, getting, uh, getting through the slog, basically. Uh, so I was just rereading Starship Troopers not long ago, and it's uh, the military parts of it aren't very convincing, really, at all. Uh, well, for me. Glenn's stuff is, or the Black Company is, it's about disenchantment. That's what is carried, I think, in a sense, from the Vietnam War. Yeah, that could, that could be what so that's a whole different out. approach to, to the function of the military and, 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 the, mm-hmm. and the price that's paid uh, by the people who are, are in, engaged in these uh, exercises, these, these um, police actions and all the rest. You know, it's, um, mm-hmm. So there's a disenchantment that is not, is not the raw, raw kind of stuff that you may have seen in Starship Troopers. Or but it's also a different kind of an approach to the material of epic fantasy. Mm-hmm. I mean, oh, yeah. I mean, really, there's, you know, it's the first example I can think of really in any substantial way that takes a gritty, on-the-ground level rather than a high-fantasy level mm-hmm. look at epic fantasy. And when you look at the history of epic fantasy itself and how talk, you know, talk and then you get... You know, Steve Donaldson and Terry Brooks coming in about the same time, but they're still sort of in the same kind of a space. This comes on uh, around a little bit later, but before Eddings and Feist and whoever, and it's a whole different thing. There's nothing quite like it. Nothing like it. I mean, mm-hmm. some material, you know, you can, you can see a little bit of grittiness back in Howard. That's very different. It's all swords and sorcery, and you can see how this leads directly on to. I mean, Joe Abercrombie <coughs> couldn't exist without this. I don't think. You know, that's why I would see it to some mm-hmm. degree, mm-hmm. and there's. Were you thinking about the larger picture of epic fantasy when you were writing, or was it just great stories that appealed to you? I just was writing stories that I liked. Um, when I started the Black Company, I just wanted to write a story which had to do with the people who actually had to do the work, mm-hmm. rather mm-hmm. Than, than the Dark Lord or the person who was fighting the Dark Lord, the kings and whatnot. I wanted to be out there with the grunts, and uh, it was not a popular idea. It took um, some effort to sell the book. Uh, the lady that, for some reason, when it was submitted at tour, it was given to the horror editor rather than the, the person dealing with science fiction and fantasy. And she hummed and hawed about it for, I don't know, a month or two, and then she rejected it because it was so different from anything that she'd ever read before. Then about four months later, she called me and she said, I can't get that damn book out of my head. <laughs> Send it back. I'm going to publish it. <laughs> so you weren't you weren't really thinking of yourself in terms of this tradition that we've been talking about. Starting starting with Tolkien, you could probably go back to William Morris if you want to go back. But talk about florid style. So this was just a way of telling a story that you wanted to tell. But why didn't you just write a war novel then? Why does it have to be in a fantasy setting? Because it was a fantasy novel. <laughs> <laughs> it was just, I, I, well, it's like hard-boiled high fantasy, and you're right, I hadn't seen... There were bits of Zelazny that mm-hmm. was at the beginning that, that had some of that sort of on-the-ground flavor, some of the humor, some of the sort of you know banter between characters and that sort of thing. But not at this... Not on this scale, certainly. Um, well, basically, it's... It is a, a novel about character, as far as I'm concerned, about just guys who have to do that mm-hmm. for a living. I mean, I was with some guys that, uh, toward the end of my brief military career, I was with a band of Force Recon Marines, all of whom were veterans of the Korean War. Mm. And <clears throat> that's the way they were every day. I was just constant banter and stuff, a constant dark humor. And did any of your old mates read any of the novels? You know, I don't know. I, I know they're very popular with the military today. Mm-hmm. Um, I have a son who's a professional army officer who 
does his best to keep secret that uh, that he's related to me because <laughs> if if the people he's working with find out they're constantly besieging him <laughs> about what was it like to grow up with Don Cook and all this stuff. But you're I mean, you're writing a lot of other stuff at the same time. I mean, were people taken aback by just first of all? I mean, you're saying back at the writers' workshop, just how prolific you were because I mean, the dread some of the dread empire stuff came out interweaved with black company books, interweaved with the Garrett PI books, interweaved with science fiction novels. I mean, Mm -hmm. there was a lot of stuff coming out. Yeah, in the 1980s, it looked like I was writing a book a week. Hmm. The reason that happened was I started writing in 1969, Ah. and nobody published any of it until (laughs) 1979. So I had like a 12, 13 book backlog, and once it started coming out, I had like four different publishers buying stuff for me. In April of, I think, 1984, I had books come out in April from four different publishers the same month. And that's just because I had been writing Mm. steadily, Mm -hmm. and then all of a sudden the dam broke and it all came through. And then after about 1990, again, all that backlog was used up, and I'm back on a relatively normal publishing schedule. Garrett P.I. every two years and mm-hmm. whatever else I happen to be doing. But is it always epic fantasy that draws you back the most, do you, do you find? To, you know, just, you know, to well, yeah, I'm not really clear on the definitions people use. I'm uh, glad you write, brought that yeah. up. Because I just write stories, you know, and then other mm-hmm. people label them as what they are. Um, just I just write what I feel like sure. writing, and I've been lucky enough to have found somebody to publish almost everything. But I did a uh, what do you call them? Family saga, generational mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. serial killer thing yeah. that was four volumes long, longer than the Lord of the Rings, and nobody's picked up. <laughs> <laughs> I had a lot of fun with it. My age. Scream and yell at me. That's two years of your life. We could have been making money. <laughs> One of the things we've no, we've been talking about the program at this World Fantasy Convention. The theme is obviously epic fantasy, and uh, every other panel seems to be on epic fantasy until you look closely and you realize, okay, the definition of epic fantasy isn't quite the same for all of these different discussions. Uh, and it, uh, it, it, as you said, it's it, it was the way you wanted to tell the story. And Steve, you're obviously, from what you're talking about with, with, with Steve Donaldson and, and, and Tolkien, you're obviously aware of being in a tradition, of entering into a tradition, and to some extent subverting some of the conventions of that. Yeah. Well, actually, to a great extent, you're subverting it. Yeah. I think, um, I think there's two strains uh, that can take you up to epic fantasy, and certainly the, the high fantasy of Tolkien is, is mm-hmm. one of them. And Donaldson was writing in response to that right. in, in very direct fashion. The other, the other route is the one I think I took more, uh, which is the sword and sorcery route, mm-hmm. and that's uh, the Howard, the Fritz Leiber, and, mm-hmm. and um, Carl Edward Wagner, and, and mm-hmm. people like that, um, and that that was the path that I that I took uh, to get there. Uh, I, I'm just thinking back to what you were saying, Jonathan, about um, uh, the grim dark or the, mm-hmm. the Abercrombie um, connection uh, that you were trying to make with, with Glenn's stuff and. I've had I've given a lot of thought about the, the grim dark stuff. I've written some stuff on Reddit um, mm-hmm. regarding that, and um, for a while I was I was I was somewhat sort of bothered by it. I was I was annoyed with it. Um, mm-hmm. First of all, it didn't seem like anything new was coming out. Of, you know, to give it a new label was was kind of uh, I don't know. It just seemed almost pointless in a sense. Sure. Mm-hmm. Um, but. I don't see a direct connection between okay. what, what Glenn is doing. Well, it's, it's, there's an indirect connection. Hmm. And what I'm seeing in a lot of, um, I won't name specific uh, authors, but who are doing Grim Dark right now that, that self identify as Grim Dark, um, it's almost more an affectation than it is an actual, um, than it is anything else. And, hmm. and it strikes me as the kind of the, the cynicism of youth. As opposed to anything else, it doesn't feel earned. Hmm. And when I look at the when I look at the Black Company, there is such a core of humanity running through that 
And you, you know, you're right. Uh, you talk about character and mm -hmm. your stories. Your stories about character, but that sense of humanity is is quite often missing in a lot of this modern grim dark. It's mm -hmm. uh, it's very nihilistic. It, it's um, it's kind of a celebration of despair, and uh, so in a sense, it's as if the trappings of or, or the surface elements of, of what Glenn was and has been writing mm -hmm. have been picked up without without any of the stuff underneath it without that humanity underneath yeah. it. And so it, it, it shows. Yeah. It just shows. Well, it might be the difference between uh, this, this conversation which I had with two authors that I probably shouldn't mention either, one of whom clearly was taking an approach like Glenn's. His idea of writing fantasy was you start with characters and the world sort of... You find, you find what world these characters live in, but basically you're trying to follow the characters. The other guy was saying, no, you, you do all your world building and the characters will just fall into place. And that second writer was one that I actually can't read at all. <laughs> because it, stri it strikes me that if your characters are simply something that are occupying a landscape and you spend all your work on the landscape, then why should people be interested in those characters in the first place? Uh, and world building is a big deal now. I mean, these, these writers' workshops, they have whole workshops, they have websites on world building, you talk to younger writers, and some of them don't even think about character until almost an afterthought. I'd say I had that problem with the Dread Empire. I spent <clears throat> two years developing the world and, mm -hmm. and laying out maps and, and making sure that uh, if you put these mountains in this place, the weather on this side of the mountain mm -hmm. would be what I wanted it to be, <clears throat> stuff like that. And it was a complete waste of time. Really? Yeah. Um, because it, it constrained what I could do with my characters. If I well, yeah, that's if I went just about the opposite direction with the Black Company. There are did. no, no maps, maps. No maps. <laughs> <laughs> which I've been hearing about every day for thirty years now. Uh, and all the people that complained about the unpronounceable names in the Dread Empire books, even though they're all real. They're written, named after real places on Polish maps and stuff. <laughs> um, so I said, "Okay, you don't want unpronounceable names. Here's your, here's your ones <laughs> that you'll have no trouble at all." Yeah. I play a lot of, or used to play a lot of games with words and and names and stuff like that. I just had this since high school. I've had this anti-intellectual stance towards. Uh, literary reviewing and whatnot. Mm -hmm. So all of this stuff, every time I'd take a course and they'd be telling me all about the secret symbolism and stuff here, I'd say, I'm going to put some of that bullshit in there. <laughs> <laughs> Just make it up. Just right. make it up. So somebody in, 19, somebody in 2130 or something like that could sit down and write them the doctoral thesis on what he really meant. What he <laughs> I'd be willing to bet money that there are people out there right now doing doctoral theses involving both of your works. I don't know who they are, but we can find out at ICFA. <laughs> yeah, we can. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, we can. Um. Do you find... I mean, I've got a friend who's an artist, and he's always said to me that adding excessive detail to a picture that he's creating actually draws away from it because it removes the ability for the reader to have space in it, or the viewer to have space in it. You find I mean, you know, you're talking about world building, mm -hmm. and you know one of the superficial things you see when you look at a, a large scale story of any kind, whether it be epic fantasy or space opera, mm -hmm. else, is the you know this you know world building element. Does it become a burden if you overdo it? I mean, is it, oh, you know, absolutely. I mean, how much time did you spend sketching out Malazan, and how much did you go? Well, well we'll write the story we're doing. Yeah. Uh, well, first of all, we gamed it. Yeah. Right, yeah. yeah. But um. World building, I sort of split it into two things. You've got the, the geography, which um, and geology, if you will. And so there, there's that kind of uh, very physical, like you say, uh, rain shadows for mountains and that kind of thing, which can affect the cultures that, mm -hmm. that are created there. But um, the, the other risk, of course, with, with uh, world building is what are you carrying across from this world into that world as an assumption? Okay, and so... Um, you know, we can we can describe uh, a fairly uh, what I would call almost lazy um, transfer across, and and one of the reasons why um, I, I consider it an issue is that 
nowadays authors are very much uh, more exposed to, to reader reactions. And so mm. if you create something that is, is patently Eurocentric, um, where you've got barbarians to the north, and you've got yeah. the dark-skinned decadent south, and you've got um, the hordes to the east, um, and a, 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 a feudalistic uh, medieval society that is patently uh, uh, patriarchy. Mm-hmm. Um, you've carried all of these assumptions across into the other world. And mm-hmm. in fantasy, you can create anything. There's, there's no reason to actually carry these things across unless you're, are, you know, are you actually saying that these are some, <coughs> some kind of uh, unapproachable truths? You know, is patriarchy something like that? Mm-hmm. And so, uh, I'm not going to name particular authors, but if an author carries that Eurocentric vision across uh, without having thought about it, um, as soon as you're published, as soon as you're out there, you are fair game. And so, mm-hmm. all I've been saying to them in my Reddit essay was to other authors was just think about the assumptions you're carrying across, um, so that at least you can defend yourself from mm-hmm. having made the choices you've made. Um, and quite often, you know, I, I see a lot of debates and stuff going on where people talk about, especially patriarchy, um, and and the authors are. are Basically unprepared to defend themselves. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and appropriation is the other issue yeah. that comes up again yeah. and again. Where you're so uh, you know, world building is it's 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 a tricky thing, and it's um, I get I get fans all the time asking me, well, you know, what about your magic system? You know, why haven't you diagrammed it? Mm-hmm. And uh, that's where I took inspiration from Glenn. Don't explain a thing. <laughs> <laughs> it's, and, and the whole thing with magic is it's magic is a metaphor for wonder. Mm-hmm. So if you explain it, you've killed it. To, to, in my mind, right? If, if you create your, your maps and, and, and your structures and, and uh, your domino effects of, of you know, a, a new physics for magic, I think you've actually you've taken one of the, the main functions away from magic and fantasy, which is a sense of wonder. But then, but, aren't a lot of these things also that packaging, the contextualizing of the story for the reader? You know, I mean, when you pick up a book and it's that big, Irrespective of what's in it. And it says volume one on the cover. And so a particular kind of art. Mm. And you flick the, the, and there on the boards is a map, and maybe the list of characters. But irrespective of what's there, it contextualizes to the reader what kind of a story they're going to encounter. Doesn't that give them something that's of value? Or do you think it's better to keep it as undefined before you start reading as possible because I mean, I've had the experience of reading a novel in manuscript and obviously you both have as you all have as well mm. and it's a completely different thing at, at the outset I mean if I pick up The Black Company I know before I you know, flip mm-hmm. a page whether I've heard of the book or not a good chunk of where it sits in spa- you know, the fictional space if you like there isn't that chance to just find it cold and start reading to find out what it is and get immersed Surely, some of the signifiers that come with it are of, of value. Yeah, um, maps I think are, are a very interesting aspect of things because you know we did maps for for the gaming stuff. But mm. Being both anthropologists and archaeologists, um, these maps could have could have been you could find the equivalent in the Penguin Atlas historical atlas, mm-hmm. for example. So it was not a map that signified there are dwarves here and there are elves there and. You know, and, and here's your your impenetrable forest with the mysteries in it, and et cetera, et cetera. So those those tropes would yeah. be signifiers to uh, in a lot of epic fantasy when you see maps like that. You know, with, with Elfenheim yeah. and, and Tron, yeah. and, and all these things. <clears throat> uh, these were just very very straightforward cartographer maps. Sure. That's all they were. So that was the only signifier was that this is not going to be the same as anything okay. else. But mm. you're right. I mean, and, and even the book covers can. Can completely, you know, blindside you. Yeah. Um, I know when Tor did uh, Gardens of the Moon, the first book, uh, mm-hmm. that cover is the most misleading cover imaginable, and um, and it had an effect. And yeah. No, I know I've talked to Tom about it, and, mm-hmm. stuff, and we've since switched. Oh yeah, yeah, right. You know, it had an effect because it created, like you say, it signposted what this thing was going to be about, and then people started reading it. And it's nothing like that at yeah. all. So, well, how did you how did you feel about the way? Uh, Dread Empire and Black Company were being packaged because when I saw the Nightshade reissues I felt they were the most stunning packaging that I'd seen on those books. Mm -hmm. The uh, artwork on the uh, 
first three Dread Empire books was by a woman named Kanuko Kraft, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. it was absolutely fantastic, <coughs> I thought. In fact, without ever having met me or seen me or anything else, she managed to paint me for the cover <laughs> on the third book. That's exactly what I looked like at the time, <laughs> minus the horned helmet. Right. <laughs> uh, the the uh, original ones on the um, uh, Black Company books were painted by a friend of mine, uh, a longtime friend of mine who was an amateur artist. He was actually a drummer in a country western band. But um, he painted the one that's on the Black Company, and I sent it to Tom. You know, try to. I didn't figure I'd have much luck, but I sent it to Tom and. You know, I asked him to take a look at it. Well, it happened to be laying on his desk when a buyer from uh, uh, Borders, I think it was, was in the office, and the guy said he would buy 50,000 copies of anything that had that on it. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> because Darth Vader was big at the time or something or other. It is kind of a Darth Vader-y looking cover. So Tom says, I hate that painting, but I'll put it on there. <laughs> and it was on, it was on for the first 19 printings, and now he's got something else on it. But uh, uh, that did well, so he bought, you know, for the next six books, he bought covers by Keith. and They worked. You know, I, a lot of them I didn't really like myself, although I like them better than the person I have now. I, yeah. I can't even think of his name, but... Uh, of the 40-so books of mine that are in print right now, 23 of them have his covers on them, so they, <laughs> they must be marketingly effective. <laughs> that's, that, 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 don't you just at some point feel like, okay, you don't want to be misrepresented, but the marketing people are marketing executives for a reason. They must know something. Mm-hmm. And there are, uh, there are any number of examples of books and, and, and uh I don't know the cover you're talking about, but I know some of the early covers of Gene Wolfe's novels didn't look like anything like a Gene <laughs> Wolfe novel at all. Nothing, yeah, the shadow of the torture. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, uh, so I'm, I'm sure that there were young readers who you know picked up a book and got got deeply puzzled very quickly. But on the other hand, by the by the time I mean essentially. You know, you're both brands now. I mean, to some extent, the name is what's going to sell most of the books. And I also wonder how much a cover makes a difference these days. With so many people are buying books, you know, online or from uh, or, or from a postage uh, stamp size, you know, um, image on on Amazon. So, um, I guess the question is: when you were starting, especially when you were starting, Glenn, books. People would go into a bookstore and see a lot of books, and they'd have to pick one out. They don't do that now. So where do new readers come from? Because you've both increased your readership exponentially during the course of your careers, and new people are coming in all the time. And I know, I know, in Steve, in your case, because I, a lot of these people show up. At, 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 I know a lot of people who have become fans of yours in the last five years. Um, how do they? How, how does the, how do these reputations balloon the way they have? I don't know. I mean, if, if I could patent that, that would be great. But yeah. um, mm-hmm. I don't know. I don't know. It's it, uh, obviously online stuff, uh, fan-based uh, sites and that kind of thing. There's that. I mean, do you think that something like the success of, of George Martin's Game of Thrones brings people back to other... Uh, actually, Game of Thrones is another uh, kind of writing that could be a, a descendant of some of, of Glenn's work because it's very mm-hmm. on the ground, very straightforward, uh, very much the work of somebody who you know, was trained as a science fiction writer and later as a TV writer, so it tends to be terse and to the point. And I always wonder if something like that brings people back to other fantasy series, and I suspect it does. Yeah, I hear, it, I, or I read, I don't hear, um, but I read from, from fans who say that you know they finished a particular series, they really liked it, and just went out looking for something mm-hmm. else similar. And uh, land on, on, you know, Whatever series, and, mm-hmm. and then I know I, I've never stopped um, talking about about Glenn stuff because mm-hmm. I remember when, when I think when Guardians of the Moon first came out in 1999. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't even think you could find a Glenn Cook uh, Black Company thing in the UK. There may have been, but they did like the first three books and the they, they bombed basically. Yeah. Mm-hmm. 
And so I, yeah, I just, you know, I just rate, rate. I still, to this day, I rate about Glenn Cook. So <laughs> I'm, I'm happy to do so. We have a mutual admiration society. <laughs> Every time somebody comes to me and tells me how much they love the Black Company, uh, what what that's what I recommend is something like that, and I tell them go grab the Gardens of the Moon. <laughs> All right, that's cool. Usually that's they get hooked. I was reading his stuff before he was ever published in this country. Uh, I won't say instrumental, but I got Tom Doherty to take the first four books and read them of his. I was a bookseller at the time, and I was carrying his his books in the British edition. Mm -hmm. Tom, you got to read these. <laughs> I didn't know that. I know it took us about four years to find to find uh, to actually get a U.S. publisher. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm curious. I mean, it's obvious that you read a lot and think about epic fantasy a lot as a form and how it evolves and the history of it. I'm curious how much attention you pay to that sort of thing, how much you are in how the field you're working in is changing uh, artistically. No. <laughs> Absolutely zero. I never even heard of this term grimdark until this weekend. Uh, I pay no attention. I don't yeah. go on the internet. Uh, Maybe once a year I'll, I'll Google myself to see what what people are saying or something or other. But basically, I I write what I want to write, and sure. and somebody either based on my name or based upon I actually told a good story mm -hmm. <clears throat> will buy the book and publish it. I I just never been really interested in what other people think. And, so what is it, apart from the act of sitting and making up a story, or, or is it just that, that you particularly enjoy and find rewarding about it? You know, because I mean, anyone, you, you can make money doing anything, you can spend your time doing anything. What was it about this that was the thing that you were engaged by? I guess it's some kind of mental junkie thing. <laughs> I mean, I've been doing it since seventh grade. I, it's something that I just have to do. I, I did recently... For the first time since since I got out of the service, actually, t take a couple of months where I didn't do any writing at all. I just kind of came to a point where mm. I'm just going to watch baseball and do yard work, and didn't have that absolute compulsion where I. My wife will tell you she's mm. been with me for 46 years now. That <laughs> uh, at, at one time, I if I did not write every day. Uh, I was not fit to have in the same house with anyone who was like, <laughs> oh, I know. Oh, so, yeah. and Absolutely. I'm less, much less that now, but I'm kind of sliding back into it. I've got the book that I'm writing on now suddenly took life about two months ago and three months ago, and it's just got to get in there, got to get in there <laughs> every day. So get in there and find out where we're going, find out what happens next. Yeah. Well, one of the reasons I ask is because I've had a conversation very like this with Joe Abercrombie, and he sounds very much like you. He's engaged by writing, he cares that people like to read his books, and doesn't really seem to care at all, particularly about any of the rest of it. Um, you know, he's sort of thinking about it on a meta level, or whatever else. Whereas, of the people I've spoken to, you're the person I know who seems most interested in the evolution of this form and what's happening. Mm. What is it that, that attracts you to thinking about it that way? Is it just your background, or maybe, maybe? Um, I, I always sort of perceive me the assumption that um, every book I write, regardless of genre, is um, an example of well, it, what it is. It's in conversation with the real world, and and so it's it's in and of its time uh, when the book is. And I, I, I couldn't even tell you how those two, how the real world uh, influences what I'm writing, but there is an engagement of some yeah. kind going on there. And so I do, I do think of those terms. I remember standing up in a, a convention in Spain with Joe Abercrombie. Yeah. And mm -hmm. just met him. He was sort of sitting in the front row, and I was talking about this stuff. And the most quizzical look on this guy's face <laughs> my entire speech. He just didn't have a, you know, it just didn't connect with him at yeah. all. And, and that, that's cool. That's fine. Yeah. It's just I mean, well, my, my impression of him was it's almost like 
And he's a smart guy, so I'm not yeah. suggesting for a second he's not, uh, or that because you don't intellectualize about this that it, you know there's anything. But it was like, well, I used to like reading Fritz Leiber books, and then I thought I'd write some of my own. And you're like, kind you of can't amazing, really yeah. criticize that. That's yeah. completely fair. But what makes me interested to talk to you about this though is there's this issue about why it seems that the world that a certain part of the world has a trouble with engaging, analyzing, and thinking about epic fantasy. Mm-hmm. And I realize that the lazy shorthand for why is, if you give me this much, it's too much to think about. Whereas if you give me that, I can kind of deal with it. Mm-hmm. But there is an evolutionary arc in epic fantasy that people don't really think about much. Even if you start from the kind of fantasy being written at the beginning of the 20th century through to... You know, from, from the 70s to the 80s to the 90s to what we see now. And it seems like that's something that needs to be talked about because, it's, I mean, if for no other reason, it's interesting to see what people are trying to do. I, I've been bashing against that wall at ICFA for yeah, years now. Yeah, I was going to say. And, it's, uh... um, it's, I mean, there's a number of reasons for it, I think. And one of them has to do with, with the whole nature and structure of academia. Um, I think what happens is... Uh, People who write their thesis on, say, epic fantasy or whatever, mm-hmm. um, they tend to go back to what grabbed them, um, probably when they were in adolescence, and and so those become their main texts for uh, analysis mm-hmm. and, and critical thought. Um, meanwhile, sort of the genre has moved on in a sense. Yeah. So then these people then end up in teaching positions and um, uh, are not actually familiar with a lot of the new stuff that's coming out because their expertise is, is from something of 20 or 30 or 50 years mm. ago. Um, Which, it should be said, is generally true of literature courses in colleges absolutely. of any absolutely. sort. Absolutely, yeah. And I, I, my, my complaint at ICFA was always, well, if you've not read anything published since, you know, 19... 70, I don't think you can call yourself an expert on fantasy. And so I, I didn't make myself at all popular. Uh, but I mean, it's a thing I've just been, I've been battling away at for a long time because the main influences on fantasy, I think now, are actually not what they were 20 years ago or 30 years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the main influence now is gaming. It's role-playing games. Um, yeah. And maybe even computer games. I don't know about that, but yeah. certainly role-playing games. And role-playing games is is a kind of a, a condensed derivative of uh, a Tolkien-esque, mm-hmm. mashed with uh, Conan, mashed with you know yeah. all kinds of uh, sword and sorcery stuff going on, including Fritz Leiber. I mean, Guy X mentions uh, Fritz Leiber in the first ADD book or mm-hmm. ADD book, um, but it has gone through uh, that whole sort of transformation that is no longer uh, a direct linkage to, to Tolkien. And so it, it, it's a different language now. And, and uh, yeah, I, I've battled it out with, with many academics at, at ICFA um, who simply don't acknowledge you know, the influence of gaming uh, on modern writers of fantasy. And it's huge. But there was one young academic at ICFA who at one point was doing a dissertation in which he argued that modern fantasy writers are stealing all their tropes from from games from back in the 70s and 80s without realizing that those games had taken their tropes from, from Fritz Leiber and Tolkien and that sort of thing. Um, so no, I, I know what you mean. And no, yeah. he certainly would acknowledge that. He, he's, he, now he would, yeah. yeah. Uh, yeah. And it, but it's, uh, it's true when you look at... The, the other thing which strikes me as, as happening more and more is... Um, I don't know, maybe absorbing other genres. And fantasy is not just fantasy. It's historical fiction. It's, And this is not new either, because I, I was a few years ago rereading some old Conan stories. It's surprising how many of the Conan stories are just horror stories. Yeah. They were in mm-hmm. weird tales. They are really... And the same thing's true with some of the Fawford and the Grey Mouser stories. Uh, so a lot of this stuff... Every time we have this conversation, it seems to come... Or something like this, it seems to go back to Fritz Leiber. Mm. Who seemed to have been doing all these things by 1935? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm saying that, and I have to say, being deeply impressed. What was it like talking about writing with Leiber? Yeah, I actually lived with him for uh, 
short period, uh, right after his I wife. Wouldn't him. You were his wife, but <laughs> uh, he okay. had an apartment that was smaller than this room, and we shared a bed, and we sat back to back typing <laughs> for a number of months. I went to visit him right after it was after the first clarion that I was at, and his yep. wife had died in the interim. And my girlfriend had moved to uh, L.A., so I kind of worked all this stuff together. and um, It was quite interesting. I learned a lot of little details about... Fritz would say something like, uh, he'd look over my shoulder and he said, you know, get some of that stuff off the map. He says, the next story you write, you're going to be constrained because you put that on the map. Here yeah. it <laughs> <laughs> so leave it off the map. And, uh, and we used each other's characters in stories, you know, just in passing. You yeah. saw my uh-huh. character Bragi across the bar staring at <laughs> It was a lot of fun. But, uh, Fritz had a lot of trouble with alcohol addiction. Mm. And of course, yeah. at that time, after his wife passed, he was really fighting it. But I think he was good when I finally decided to go back to working for General Motors. Yeah. Well, I guess we should begin to perhaps ride up. Yeah, right. Yeah, ride up. Looks like five minutes. And so, I guess the main thing is, I think it's encouraging to me that we're sitting here at a world fantasy convention where you guys are both guests of honor. Mm -hmm. If only because this is one of the main meeting points for the fantasy environment, fantasy genre each year, and a guest of ownership is a really big deal here. And generally, they don't talk to. I haven't had a lot of epic fantasy writers mm. in in that sort of role. So I think that's at least encouraging that maybe there might be some side of people willing to talk about this more and think about it and not be daunted and try to analyze whether Eddings equals Feist equals and where does a Catherine Kurtz exist and all this kind of thing. So with that in mind, I understand. By the way, I should quickly say your most recent book out is Willful Child, which mm-hmm. is out, mm-hmm. and with Fall of Light sort of somewhere in front. Yes, and I guess we're looking for what another. Well, I'm working on a Black Company novel entitled Portal. Port of Shadows. Port where of shadows. port okay. means door rather, rather than seaport. Mm. Uh, yeah. Well, thank you very both. Yes. Very much. Thank you both very much. Let me put it that way. <laughs> <laughs> yes, we really appreciate you making the time today, and we hope to see you again. Okay. Yeah. Until then. Thank you. Mm-hmm.